<clears throat> we are getting kind of toward the end of our study of the book of Revelation, if, if you can actually believe that. We are two-thirds of the way through the book at this point. Uh, one of the things that will become obvious to you is this, is as we get closer to the end of the book, there's some things that become more and more prevalent. They've been underlying a lot of this as we've gone along, and they've, they've spoken forth at times. But, uh, but one of the big things is this, is there is a lot of discussion about judgment to come. And I know it's something that people have uh, not a lot of comfort in talking about. Uh, it's something of the Word of God. You find it all over the place. It's not a New Testament concept. Jesus talked about judgment almost as much as he talked about anything else. Uh, but you find the same thing with the Old Testament prophets. There's a real focus upon God's judgment that is coming. Uh, and so you find that same thing is true here in the book of Revelation. It shouldn't surprise us because this is not only the last book in the New Testament, it's the last book in the Bible. Uh, and we started talking about the, <clears throat> the seven bowls of wrath last week in chapter 16 of Revelation. And we got all the way down to through verse 9, I think. I guess I'll go back. I'm going to go back and read the beginning part of it as well because it certainly has everything to do with what we're going to talk about this morning. And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of wrath of God into the earth. And the first angel went and poured out his bowl into the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore upon men who had the mark of the beast. And who worshiped his image. I want to bring this to your attention this morning. Because I don't know. I noted it at last week. But like I probably should have. And that is you need to understand something. And that is this. Either at this point. In the unfolding of things. The people of God have been removed from the earth. In that rapture that will come when Jesus comes the second time. You understand that? Or at the very least. We can have every comfort that somehow he's affording protection to his people, those who have the seal of the Father and of the Son on their forehead during this time of great judgment. Uh, so, what I'm saying here is it's not something you need to be concerned about. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, of ever going through these things yourself. It's just like with Israel and Egypt. There's a lot of reflection going on here between that and this. And just remember this. Early on, the, 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 the Israelites endured the plagues right along with the Egyptians. But there came a point where they were made distinct. They were protected. So we have the same promise from God, and there should be a lot of great comfort that comes in understanding that. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and everything, every living thing in the sea died. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous art thou who art and who Wast, O holy one, because thou didst judge these things. And he poured out the blood of the saints, and that for they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. 
They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent, so asked to give him glory. That's a very important verse. You're going to see this repeated a number of times, and that is this, that even when brought under these very extreme and severe conditions, the hardness of the human heart shows itself forth in their unwillingness to repent. And notice here we mentioned this last week, that there's no one here any longer in this world denying that there is a God. Everyone knows that in order to blaspheme him, you have to know that he is. But it's not sufficient to bring them to the point of repentance. Verse 10. The fifth angel poured forth his bowl upon the throne of the beast, and the kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up in the way that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. And they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of, of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place, which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a Great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth, so great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. And the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the vine, a wine of his fierce wrath, and every island fled away, the mountains were not found, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hell, because its plague was extremely uh, severe. I hope that as we're reading through there, you can really see a lot of parallelism going on there between plagues that are mentioned here in Revelation and plagues that were poured out upon Egypt in the days of Moses and Israel coming out of the land. And just with that picture in mind, we need to be thinking maybe along these lines that we've been promised a better land, that God is taking us out of this place and he has a better land for us a place that is far better than we can possibly imagine. And we need to set our eyes upon that land more and more and more as the days pass because that is our home now. This world is no longer the place. We may be here physically uh, and, and that sort of thing, but that he- the heaven, the place where Jesus is, wherever he is, 
is actually where our real home is now. We are going to pick up with verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. Forty-seven times in the book of Revelation, the throne of God is mentioned. Think about all the way back to verses, chapters 4 and 5, totally dedicated to a description of the throne of God and the worship that takes place there. Remember, I mentioned to you at that point that Sinclair Ferguson had written at one time that what he did, the first time he read that was when he was a young boy. And from that point on, every Sunday morning, he has read that particular passage in the Bible in an effort to prepare himself for worship that he is about to take part in. Has anyone here even thought about doing that once since we talked about it so many months ago? I would highly recommend it. I haven't done it every Sunday, but I've done it a number of Sundays. There are only a couple of places in Scripture where the beast is mentioned as having a throne. One of the things I want to bring to your attention this morning is this, is that so far these plagues that have been poured out uh, of, the, uh, of the fierce wrath of God have fallen upon the physical world, but now we're entering more into the spiritual realm. His kingdom became dark. Now, what is his kingdom? Well, uh, obviously, the kingdom of the evil one has got to be the fallen world as it is uh, and the abyss to which he's been given the key to. becomes dark. Now, when we think about darkness, we always want to jump to physical darkness. In other words, the light going out. As we said before, the, the really, I think the picture we need to be thinking more about this morning is this idea of spiritual darkness. His is the kingdom of spiritual darkness, where there is no light. There's only lie. There's only untruth. There is not the glory of God showing forth as it should be before you and I very, very often, as Bruce was so good at presenting to us this morning. That there is a great and glorious God that we serve, and our eyes and our hearts should see that more and more, not less and less. And we should never become lazy about that. We need to be searching and seeking out that light with every effort that we can uh, bring forth. It is a strange darkness because this darkness brings pain. Now, we've been in the dark before. The darkest place I think I've ever been before, Matthew and I one time, we, we, we hiked down into the ape caves out at uh, Mount St. Helens in Oregon. We went three, quarter of, uh, uh, three quarters of a mile down into the heart of, of the mountain and we turned off all the lights. And talk about dark. I mean, there's just there's no light, no light at all. And you and I need to look upon the world as it is, as being in that kind of darkness, this extreme, you know, darkness where there really is 
no light at all. And, and, and if you can think back to the time when you were an unbeliever, was life painful for you? Were there things in your life that were really heart-wrenching and, and, and tearing you apart at times? I can say it was true for me. And there was no relief. There was no place to go. There was no place of release for that pain. Notice here that these, these people are in such torment, they're in such pain that they're gnaw, gnawing their tongues. Now, have you bitten your tongue lately? Most of us do it. Some of us do it on more regular occasions than others. Some of us are learned a lesson the first couple of times. We don't do it anymore because we know that even something as little as a, a bite on our tongue hurts. It's a, that special organ in our mouth that is used for a number of things that helps us to talk and at the same time helps us to eat. But it has pain sensors in it for a reason, and that is to, keep it, to, to remind us to keep it from going between our teeth when we're chewing. So can you imagine people being in such pain that they're gnawing their tongues? Well, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I've been in severe pain, one of the things I've found, it actually helps a little bit sometimes, is to create another source of pain that takes your attention off of the other one at least a little bit. Peggy's done this when she's had kidney stones. I'd be willing to bet you anything. I've done it. I mean, they're doing whatever they can to take their attention off this unimaginable level, degree of pain that they're suffering. And we want to make it to be completely of a physical nature, but I would challenge us with the idea that it really is more of a spiritual nature, a spiritual torment, a spiritual pain, a spiritual suffering that is going on. And again, we're told that they blaspheme God, that they curse God, the God of heaven. Now, why would they do that? It's because they blame him. They would cry out to him in justice. That I don't deserve what I'm suffering. But the truth is this, and this is one of the things that, that brings us into the light as we come to the point where we realize that we deserve every displeasure God could grant to us. That's what we've earned. And it's true for every single one of us. Do you have some times when things get really, really bad where where you, where you get to the point where you're ready to blaspheme God yourself. Or maybe you do it on occasion. Because you can't believe the misery that maybe you happen to be going through at that particular point in your lifetime. Things like that tell us this, that the old self is still there. Still there. Not quite so prominent as he or she used to be. But still there. In some sense, ready to strike out at God. And we think we have grounds for doing that. 
See, the problem here, guys, is this, is they're not repenting. And repenting means this. It means admitting you're the problem. These people are suffering because of what they have done. They're not suffering because of anything that God has done. They don't take ownership of their sin. They don't take ownership of their own wrongdoing. And in their pain, they curse God. They blame God. They blaspheme God. Something that he is never, ever worthy of. Not one time has he ever been worthy of it. In all of eternity. They did not repent. Again, a measure of just how rock hard solid the human heart is. Apart from the grace of God. Hallelujah for grace. If not for God's grace, we would be here. If not for God's grace, we would be suffering right along with the unbelieving. The sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great uh, river, the Euphrates. Very often in Scripture, the Euphrates is called the great river. It's first mentioned in Genesis in association with the Garden of Eden. Its water was dried up that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. Euphrates River is almost 1,800 miles long. It's the watershed for most of western Turkey, Syria, Iraq, places like that. It's called the Great River a number of times in in the Bible. In, in, In Bible days, it was thought to be basically a dividing line between the Eastern world and the Western world. As a matter of fact, it was very often considered to be an obstacle of armies coming from the East to invade the West. It never happened until the Persian king in in 539 B.C., King Cyrus, who's mentioned, by the way, in the book of Isaiah, hundreds of years before he ever existed, as being his servant, the servant of God. He was able to cross the Euphrates because it dried up and conquer Babylon. I want to throw this before us this morning, and I meant to do this kind of in my introduction, and that is very often we want to take everything in this book literally. And I would say this, that there's a good chance, there's a large part of this not really meant for us to take literally. In other words, should you and I look forward to a day, if we're still living in the world, when all of a sudden everyone around us is unbelieving, breaks out in sores? Is that what we really need to be expecting? Well, let me tell you, that's, that's a possibility. But I would say it's not the only possibility. Though really, what I would say is probably more likely is this. It's because, remember, the book of Revelation is full of all kinds of signs and symbols. Some of which we know and some of which we don't know. 
I would say it's far more likely that what is going on here in this book is pictures that we can look at and we can see and we can get some sense of the depth of the meaning of things are given to us. So what I'm saying here is these pictures, these visions that John is seeing, that Jesus is showing to John, and John is writing down in this book and and describing them as best as he can in human language. They're here to show us not necessarily the details of the judgment to come, but the reality of the judgment that is coming. We don't talk about judgment a lot in church anymore. It used to be, you know, you, you used to always hear about these hellfire and brimstone sermons, and you just don't hear much of them anymore. Uh, I think very often it's easy to avoid those kinds of sermons, uh, even though they're all over the place in the Bible. And like I said before, Jesus talks about God's judgment more than anybody else does. But there's a place for it. I mean, there really is. I, let me tell you something. I would, I would, I would not associate with the church. If you went, if you went to every Sunday morning, it was a hellfire and brimstone sermon. And a hundred years ago, that was very often the case. That's what you got ram crammed down your throat every Sunday morning. Think about that that Disney movie. I can't remember the name of it. Right, Pollyanna. Remember the church service that took place there and the, and, the, and the rafters were shaking in the building and all that other sort of thing, kind of thing? And, 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 the, and the word to Pollyanna from the, the servants at her, her uh, aunt's house to begin with was this, is, is Sunday's torment. Sunday's not something you look forward to and have joy about or anything like that. And the reason was this, is because they went every week and they got hammered and blammered and bammed with... God's judgment. Let me tell you, that would be very wrong if that took place every single week. Because that's not the whole message. But let me tell you guys, it's just as wrong if it never happens. Because that is also part of the message. And it's not my message, it's God's message. It's scripture. It's the message of Jesus. It's the message of the apostles. The prophets over and over again. We're getting to the day where people are oversensitive about themselves. You can't say this anymore. You can't do that anymore. You can't think this anymore. So on and so on and so on and so on. Do you think that's had some impact upon the church and the way the church goes about doing the business of God? Probably. There are people that will tell you this. I was scared into heaven. Really. That one of those judgment sermons they heard was the thing that really spurned them and encouraged them to seek out the Savior. I can't imagine anybody would desire to endure the things that we're talking about here.
And I saw coming up out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. It was the beast who came up from the, from the earth, referred to as the false prophet. Three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. The, the, the anti-trinity appears here again, the, 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 this wicked evil trinity. In some sense, a reflection of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In a sense, a mockery of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Exactly the opposite of them. And out of their mouth, unclean spirits, like of all things, frogs. Now, when we think about unclean spirits, we probably would never have, frog probably never would pass through our minds at all. But, again, here we have a reflection also of one of the plagues in Egypt. There was a plague of frogs. The book of Deuteronomy declares frogs to be unclean because they don't have scales. Now, I don't know if anyone here is really intimidated by frogs. Uh, But we know this. We know that they communicate, in essence, I guess, with one another by doing what? By doing what we call croaking. Frogs croak. Now, they may be telling each other some things that are not clear to you and I, but I don't imagine if they have any kind of language at all that's got more than one or two words in it. I would imagine when they're croaking, they're croaking to maybe try to attract other frogs or find out where the other frogs are or something along those lines, but there's a reason for it. They don't make noise just to make noise. Likened to false prophets or out of the false prophet. And we need to understand the dragon, the beast, and, and, and also the, be- the beast that comes out of the scene, the beast that comes out of the earth. They all, in essence, are false prophets. They have a false message. If you consider the Old Testament and Deuteronomy, it tells us how we can tell the difference between false prophets and true prophets, and that is that when a, someone says that something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, that is an indication they're a false prophet, and we're supposed to not pay any attention to what they say. As a matter of fact, you're supposed to take them out and stone them to death, according to the Old Testament law. I would say that there's also another rule that is not really written down in Scripture anywhere, but you see it used through Scripture all over the place. The apostles use it. They depend upon the Old Testament to help them understand the things that God has revealed. You follow what I'm saying? And that is this. There's another test for false prophets, and that is to weigh what people say in the balance of Scripture. And if it holds up, then, there are, then there, you can accept their, their word is true. But if it doesn't, then you reach Reject it. We've talked about this many, many times. This is is our protection from falling into false understanding and false doctrine and false teaching. 
is to know the Bible ourselves. It's the only protection that we have. There's all kinds of people out there in the world. Are there false prophets out there today? Yes, there are, because we're told in the Bible that they will be in every age. And some of them have messages that are absolutely ridiculous. And according to what, what is said here, sometimes they're able to do signs and symbols to validate the things that they say and they teach. To make people believe that they're true. When you think about those plagues in Egypt, remember the first three or four of them that the magicians in Egypt were able to duplicate. You think about Paul and Barnabas in Cyprus. They came across a magician by the name of Bar-Jesus that was able to do signs and wonders. When I got to Uganda last time, Pastor Sam was, and this was all the way back in 2007. I haven't seen my Ugandan brothers and sisters since 2007. Uh, I think about them a lot. I really do. But uh, Pastor Sam picked us up at the airport. He's always been a very animated person. and just I mean, he's one of the most delightful people in the world I know of just to be around. He is contagiously happy and joyous he smiles all the time he has a wonderful sense of humor he has a real heart for God and real heart for God's people he he just oozes the love of Christ I'm telling you Uh, but he was kind of irritated when I, I first got together with him because he had just recently come from a meeting and in this meeting they had been discussing something that had taken place in Uganda just a few weeks before a few days before that and that there was an evangelist who came to Uganda who was, who was preaching a false gospel. But he was doing signs and symbols. The sign he was doing was this, is he was slaying people in the spirit. He was laying people flat. Only after he had done it for some time did they discover a taser shoved up his sleeve. He was tasering people. And claiming to be slaying them in the spirit. So we need to be very suspicious of signs and symbols. Because sometimes they're not at all what maybe they appear to be on the surface. uh, And that sort of thing. But they're going out and they have a particular message. And it's a message that's addressed to the kings of the whole world. So this is global now. This is not some regional thing. This is obviously with this point... All of this stuff is global. To the kings of the whole world. For a purpose. And that's to gather them together. For the war of the great day of God. The almighty. The best way to think of this is. The final day of the culmination of. Of God's purpose and plan in regard to humankind. Sometimes in scripture it's called the day of the Lord. Sometimes the day of God. 
sometimes references the final day. We've heard all about this for many, many years. And we can imagine through history that very often people believe that they did the, you know, the battle of Armageddon was upon them. The end of the world had come and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I would imagine that was a very common thought uh, amongst people that lived during the days of World War I and World War II. These conflicts that were not, and even that they were not absolutely global. There were a lot of people in the world that had nothing to do with World War I or World War II, but there were a lot of people in the world, a large percentage of the population that were very deep into the world wars. There's already been a battle that's been fought, guys. We studied this earlier on in the book of Revelation, and that is the battle that ensued in heaven. When this angel that we know as Lucifer rebelled against God, and there were, and, and there you could say, there's indication in this book here that as many as one third of all the angels fell right along with him, and they rebelled against God. They tried to push him off his throne. Isaiah 14 seems to be a reflection of that, or talks about how he desired basically, to push God off his throne and to rise above him. He was defeated. Not utterly and not absolutely. God's allowed him to exist for all of these years. He serves God's purpose in some ways. Not winningly, not wantingly, not maybe even knowingly, but he does it nonetheless. He exists for one reason, because God allows it. He is no threat to God. He's never been any threat to God. One of my professors used to tell us all the time he could snuff him out, he could squash him like a grape any time he wants to do it. He has chosen thus far not to do it. But the day will come when that will happen. And all this so-called power and authority that Satan has will be stripped from him. And he will be cast into the lake of fire along with all of the other fallen angels and every unbelieving person into that lake of fire that is mentioned so often in the latter book, uh, chapters of the book. But there is a battle coming. But just like all battles, very often they... Start out small, and they build as time goes by. I just bring to your attention this, and that is that we've been talking about a battle that's been going on ever since we began this book of Revelation. Right? The battle between God... And all that is good and all that is great and all that is grand and all that is glorious in a battle in a battle against those who oppose him. Being a Christian means realizing there really is a battle 
It's going on now. It's building. And one of these days it will come to the end. But the battle's been going on ever since the Garden of Eden. Rebellion against God. And he's tolerated it all of these years. And he could have snuffed all of it out. He could put an end to it at any moment. At any second he desired to do that. He could have done that. But he's allowed it to continue. For his own reasons and his own purpose. Which we don't understand. And I hope you don't think you fully understand. The reasons and the ideas and the purposes of God. He sees things clearly. You and I don't. We see things always through a fog. And that fog has a purpose. And that purpose is to mislead us if we let it do it. To fall into false understanding. To follow false doctrine, false prophets, etc., etc., etc. It's the sin, that vestige of sin that we talk so much about that is still in every single one of us. We know from verse 15, who is it has been talking all along? We've heard about this great loud voice that's coming from the temple. And I suggested to you last week it was Jesus. And I'm telling you this morning, it is Jesus. Verse 15, I'm coming like a thief. Jesus basically says that himself. Peter says it. Paul says it. And when Jesus comes, he's going to come like a thief in the night. When people don't expect him. Now, we live in a day when there's great anticipation that that Jesus is coming at any point now. And let me tell you, those people could be right. But let me say this as well. And that is there have been people in every single generation, even the apostles. The apostles had, had this understanding or belief that Jesus was going to come back within just a short period of time after he ascended into heaven. You see it reflected in their letters. There have been people in every generation who were convinced that all the signs and symbols were there and that Jesus was coming today. And that's been true for every year for 2,000 years. People who believed it with all their heart and soul and mind and strength that he was coming now. But I always go to Peter. Peter basically says, you know, don't take the fact that that some time had passed by because you need to understand that Christians in the first generation of Christians in the New Testament church, they were struggling with the same thing. They believed Jesus is coming, was imminent, he hadn't come back yet, and they're beginning to think, has he forgotten? Is he, is he just not going to do it? And Peter there tells them, no. God doesn't measure time the same way that you and I do. That for us, what would be a thousand days is for him one day. Remember, this God is not trapped in time. God has created time. He's not bound by time at all. There is no beginning of God. There is no ending of God. He's eternal. Now wrap your head around that one. 
Jesus is coming like a thief. To gather all the forces to place, which in Hebrew is called Armageddon, which simply means mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo is a place that's in northern Israel, uh, just east of Mount Carmel. If you can remember the, where Elijah had the duel with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And there's this wide open valley that runs east from Mount Carmel. And there's a city called Megiddo that is there in that plain. And by the way, Nazareth is very close to it. It is on the northern rim of this plain. The place where Jesus was born. It's the place where King Josiah died. It's, it's the, Mount Gilboa is on the rim of it as well. It's the place where Saul and his sons died. There's a sense in which this valley, this plain of Megiddo is... The battlefield of Israel. There was a major battle in the Six-Day War back in the 60s in Israel that was fought in this place. Shouldn't surprise us that this is the site mentioned in the Bible as being the place of this last great battle. But just remember this, guys and gals, that things in the book of Revelation are always are very often signs and symbols of a greater reality. And I'd say that this probably fits into that category. Because we're talking about global at this point. We're talking about Jesus appearing in the clouds. And rapturing his church to himself. And then descending upon this earth and everyone else left in it. In God's judgment. I heard a story one time. There, there was a group of people that they had been in church. Uh, and it had been one of those judgment sermons. And they were talking about it after the worship service. And there happened to be someone there that no one knew. I just was a visitor that just came in. No one knew who they were and where they were spiritually and any of that sort of stuff. that person became a believer that day. And what they said was, I got scared into heaven. So the challenge for us guys is this, is that when we share the truth with people, that we share the whole truth. Not just the bits and pieces of it that we think are going to make them feel warm and fuzzy and all those kinds of things. 
They need to hear the whole truth of the gospel, which includes judgment just as much as salvation.